0: Alright, everybody doing well? I'm just stand behind Matt, that was weird. Uh, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to be. As we're flipping, um, just a couple real quick announcements for us. Um, if you grabbed a bulletin, man, I just feel so Southern Baptist saying that. I'm not going to get used to that. Uh, if you grabbed a bulletin on your way in, just check it out. If you have any questions about any of that, um, just let one of us know at the connections table there at the end. Um, one of the things that you'll see in there is our 10 and 10 vision to create a network of 10 churches within the next 10 years. Um, so I just always want to keep that in front of you guys. Kyle and Jen will be leaving here in May to go launch a church in Milledgeville Um, in August. So if you have any questions about that, if you want more information, you want to see what that looks like, or uh, if you just want to schedule a week to go down and check out, uh, Kyle is working, we're kind of adopting the college ministry into the church called FAM. uh, So Kyle's been working with them, growing core team together on Thursday nights. So if you want to go down and check that out, feel free to do that as well. Uh, Last thing, just kind of a recap of last week, we talked um, about basically the text was, don't make excuses. If Christ has called you, don't make excuses. And so I just had to stand up here and say, listen, there's, in a lot of ways, I'm making some excuses. I'm, I'm doing the spiritual things. I'm doing the church thing, but not what God has called me to do. Um, and so just kind of an update on that, just so you guys know my heart and some things that our family is trying to get more involved in, if you guys want to come with us. Um, tomorrow from four to six is a meeting, an informational meeting about CASA. I don't know if you guys know anything about CASA, but it's child advocacy. So you get to walk next to someone that's going into foster program or um, there's that while their parents are going through family treatment court you get to be the advocate for that child you get to hang out with them spend time with them represent him I mean it's literally being a voice for the voiceless Um, so tomorrow from 4 to 6 at the women's club uh, which we've had the gathering there at one time uh, kind of right behind Hancock Park from 4 to 6 you can do that Um, another thing I was doing looking into this week and starting to fill out the application uh, Lumpke County is always looking for mentors Um, so if you have an hour a week an hour every other week just to go to the school and just hang out with some of the students that uh, need mentorship, Um, you can join me in doing that. Uh, We've also just tried to be more intentional about some of our friends that God has put in our lap. And So I'm not saying that to say, look at me, look how great we're doing, but uh, I can't be your pastor and preach with integrity if I don't follow up with what I'm saying from last week. So um, just know that like we're pressing and we're praying uh, that we wouldn't make excuses about what God has asked us to do. Sound fair? So before we dive into Luke 14, I need a helper, and here's where I need. Um, no offense, ladies, it needs to be a male. Well, no, whatever. This is 2017. If you want to be ladies, it's fine. That too, right? I mean, I'm not going to act like it's last year. It's this year. Uh, So, ladies, if you want to do this, but here's, I can't go into a ton of detail just for the sake of time, um, but what I'm going to ask you to do totally changed my life and my outlook on life. Um, So, can I get a volunteer to help me real quick uh, on what I need you to do? Anyone? Anyone? Caleb, come here. All right. So, Caleb, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. This is a 20-pound ball, okay? So... Um, I want you to, I'm going to teach you the form, and then you're going to go to the back. You see that purple line? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that is 10 feet. So what I need you to do, this is called a wall ball. So you're going to have the ball right here. You're going to go to a full squat. Okay, you're going to stand up, and you're going to throw it 10 foot, bounce it off that line, catch it, and go back down. Okay, fair? 150. 150 times. (laughs) Good. This is going to be great. We can can all watch them get started. Don't rip those white pants, man. That's going to be a bad day. (laughs) There you go. Don't make me no-rep you. If you don't go low enough, that's a no-rep. Here we go. Keep working. So here, here's where we're going this morning. Um, there was a guy that used to be a church member here that has now graduated and moved on named Will Brownlee. Uh, now, Will Brownlee, I'm still bitter about this to this day. Uh, Will Brownlee said, hey man, you should come check out this thing called CrossFit. I don't really have time to explain. Just come, come work out with me. I'm like, cool, okay, like I wanna work out. I wanna get healthy. Sounds great. So the first day I show up to this thing called CrossFit, they hand me a 20 pound ball, show me the 10 foot line and they say, okay, go hit 150 of them. That was my first experience with CrossFit. I hated Will Brownlee with everything that I had that entire workout. And I didn't go back for a while, mainly because I couldn't walk. Um, once We'll see Caleb, if he, if he makes it, he's gonna be feeling this. Um, but the whole way through this CrossFit, CrossFit exercise, all that I kept thinking, I just want to quit. I just want to quit. What am I doing here? This makes no sense. I just want to quit. I want to be done. And I almost quit, except my parents didn't raise quitters. So um, I pressed through, but literally couldn't walk for a long time. It didn't go to CrossFit for another month or so. Um, Caleb, how are you feeling, man? <laughs> <laughs> you want to, You want to quit? You can if you want to. I totally understand. I t- come on. I'm not going to make you do any more. Just curious, how many did you get? Um, 11. Eleven. Okay. It was awful, wasn't it? One of the worst decisions you made. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> um, so, as we're gonna see in Scripture this morning. If anyone wants to try it, they're more than willing to try. Uh, but as we're going to see, Jesus is saying, hey, don't make this mistake. I'm going to outline everything that I require for you to be a Christian. I'm going to be as blunt and as forceful and lay it in front of you. Because, Caleb, if I would have said, hey, man, do you want to do 150 wall balls and explained them to you, would you have raised your hand? No, <laughs> no way, right? But it's only because I said, man, this changed my life. You should come do this with me. Then you hopped on. And so what we're going to see with Christ this morning to see, is crystal clear. This is what Christianity means. This is what it looks like. Consider the cost before you commit. Um, so Luke 14, we're going to pick it up in verse 25. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid his foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Verse 32. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If it is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you that you are blunt with us, that you are up front with us. Jesus, we just pray that this morning, as we study your word, God, that you would speak to all of us, um, that your truth would resonate in our hearts, Father. It wouldn't be any of my words, but Father, would you speak through me to the church this morning. That's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, that's, that's some pretty strict words, right? If you don't hate your mother and father, if you don't renounce everything that you have, you cannot be a disciple. Uh, Jesus didn't mince his words. He was trying to make a very crystal clear point. And, and here's where we kind of have to understand of that day. Um, there's probably 10 to 20,000 people following Jesus through um, on his trek to Jerusalem. I mean, 10 to 20,000. If you did the math, that's, if you filled two football fields with people, that's the crowd that was following Jesus. So even for him to teach to a crowd that large is just crazy. But we have, I mean, we just have to take a step back and and, and put ourselves into this text because as Americans, especially Christians and Americans, we love crowds, don't we? I mean, crowds is what sells. I get this question all the time. Well, hey, tell me about your church. And what they really mean is how many people are coming, right? I mean, I'm sure you guys, when you're inviting people to the branch or you're telling people about your church history, how big is it? Everything that gets celebrated within the local church is what? how big they are. They've got Outreach Magazine has the top 100 fastest growing church list. I mean, there's, there's all these lists, there's all these things going on about how big is your church, that crowds are great, the more people the merrier. But what we see here is maybe that's more like uh, pro sports and less like the church. Because when Jesus has this huge massive crowd around him, he's going, wait, 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 I need to be honest with you here. I need you to take a step back and listen to what I'm saying because, in verse 34 through 35, outlines it with salt, if you don't, if you don't heed my warning, if you don't listen up, you're going to be like salt. You're going to be fervent at first. You're going to be all about me and all about the gospel and all about the church, but eventually you're going to lose all your saltiness and you're going to be thrown out. You're going to be like, no offense, Caleb, Caleb that starts a workout really strong and makes it halfway through and quits. And we've all probably seen this, right? We've grown up with people that have come through the church that we were there when they were saved, we were there when they were baptized, uh, but they get to college or they get later on in life and they fall away from the gospel. And I would argue because what Christ is arguing is because they didn't consider the cost. And I'll, I mean, as a pastor of a church, I will, let, I will take the ownership in some of this. It's because the church doesn't preach this message. What we're about to go through, the church never preaches. It never says, listen, I know being a Christian is great and all, but can we sit down and talk about this? We're going, no, 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 whatever it takes. Whatever it takes for you to become a Christian, we're going to make it as easy as possible for you to walk this aisle because that's what we want because we want to feel good about ourselves because of numbers. But this is contrary to the gospel that is being preached here. So for us this morning, where is Jesus getting at? Preaching to this crowd of 20,000 people. You've got to count the cost to be a disciple. You've got to stop and consider, stop and ponder. Let me outline to you what a disciple is, and then you make your choice. You make your choice. So here's the first things first. What is a disciple? I mean, I think that's one of those words we use all the time, but do we actually know what it means? Um, so 264 times in the New Testament, the word disciple is used. So it's obviously something our ears should perk up. If you have any church background, we've all grown up, Matthew 28, we probably have a t-shirt on it, like go and make disciples because that's what you do. But, but what does that actually mean? Um, so just a couple biblical outlines that means giving one's first loyalty. So what does it mean to be a disciple, to give one first loyalty? So at the branch, the way we describe it is a disciple of someone that knows, believes, and obeys Jesus in every walk of life. So do you know who Jesus is in your finances? Do you know who Jesus is in your outreach? Do you know who Jesus is in your neighborhood? Do you know who Jesus is in your parenting, in your studying? Do you believe that truth of how Jesus affects everything? And then are you actually living it out? Are you obeying what he is asking you to do? So that's how we would define a disciple here, is someone who knows, believes, and obeys. I think one of the biggest models though that Jesus sets for us is less of the classroom discipleship and more of the apprentice discipleship. I'm not knocking, I mean, we do some of this here, so I'm not knocking this, but I think in in our minds, we just think discipleship equals classroom. So sit down, let me teach you everything there is to know about the Bible, and then you're a disciple, you're good, it's a classroom setting, it's once a week, um, hour a week, it's very tangible, now go. Now that's, that's true at some level. If I'm gonna be a mechanic, I need to understand the inner workings of an internal combustion motor. But just because you teach me everything, anyone watch Big Bang Theory? Okay, one of my favorite quotes from Big Bang Theory, their car breaks down, these guys are just astrophysicists, incredible minds. And so uh, Penny has said, does anyone know anything about a motor? They're like, yeah, we know everything about this motor. Anyone know how to fix it? No, not a clue, right? So we can do that if we're not careful with the Bible, that if we know everything there's to know about Bible, but we don't actually apply it, are we actively a disciple? So Jesus puts up this apprenticeship model where you follow after me and you watch how I integrate God's kingdom coming in every arena of life. When I'm good, when I'm bad, when I withdraw to pray, when I teach to crowds, you just follow after me. I'm gonna teach you what you need to know through the process. It's a lot of hands-on learning. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so uh, there's a quote here that just kind of outlines where we're going to go the rest of the morning. I think it'll be on, yep. Uh, There is always an if in connection with discipleship, and it applies that we need not be disciples unless we like. There's never any compulsion. Jesus did not cohere us. There is only one way to be a disciple, and that is being devoted to Jesus, So, you can't be coerced into being a disciple. I can't sit here and manipulate you into it. We have to study Scripture for ourselves and say, okay, if that's what Christ requires of me, I'm in. I'm in for this apprenticeship. I'm in for this laying down everything that I have to follow this man, Jesus. But he never coerces us. He preaches this message and then literally starts walking, not looking back. Do what you want the way to freedom the way to real life is with me but i'm not going to manipulate you i'm not going to coerce you i'm not going to you come if you want to so what does it mean actually to be a disciple now verse 26 opens it up for us if one comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple so the first thing, the first characteristic that we would say of a disciple is I'm someone who loves, whose love for Christ trumps love for anyone else. So hate does not literally mean hate, but what Jesus is preaching such a strong message. He's trying to lay everything out there for us that there'd be no doubt in our minds what it looks like to follow a disciple. It would just be like me telling Caleb, man, this workout is going to kill you. Do I literally mean it's going to kill him? No, but there's going to be moments where it feels like it, Right? When you get to 100, 110 and you're just gassed, you feel like you're going to die. So we see this principle, uh, anyone married in here? Anyone happily married in here? Amen, there we go. Uh, So we see this with marriage. I mean, it's very clear. Genesis tells us, Matthew, or Jesus quotes it again in Matthew, to leave your father and your mother and to cleave to your wife, right? To put all of your needs, all of your wants, all of your hopes into your spouse, not your parents anymore. Does that mean you hate your parents? No, but you're actively putting, I'm actively putting the needs of my wife over the needs of my parents. So much so that it would look like I hate my parents because I'm so passionate about my wife. It's this leave and cleave idea. So is it really that we're um, hating everyone around us? No, but our love for Christ should be so strong and it should be such a paramount for us that all relationships in comparison look like hate, right? So our, as we're considering this cost of discipleship, Is that really us? I mean, did you sign up for Christianity going, okay, I'm gonna put my love for Jesus ahead of every other relationship that I have? Or was it, yeah, just just say this prayer and you're good. Don't worry about what's gonna happen, right? Uh, The second thing that we see out of the text of what a disciple really is is verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So what is a disciple? Someone who's willing to suffer, to face ridicule, and even potentially face death for his love of Christ as a disciple. So this imagery here, that pick up your cross, means really nothing to us. But to these Jews that were listening to this, here's a scene they probably had seen. They were sitting on their front porch drinking some cocoa in the morning, maybe had some tea going on. They were just talking about the day, right? And they see one of their friends, surrounded by a group of Roman guards, leading their friend away, and he's carrying his cross, And here's what those guys on that front porch know. We're never seeing that guy again. He's he's gone. So they're going to say their goodbyes. They're going to wish they could talk to him one more time. But they know what it means when someone has the cross on their back that they're walking to their death. So Jesus is saying, are you willing to pick up your cross and walk out of your town knowing that you're never coming back? Are you willing to carry that cross to carry that burden? Are you willing to put all other things ahead uh, or behind me and only me and me first? Are you willing to pick up that cross to put it on your back and start walking? Have you counted the cost of what that would really look like? I mean, we have to understand, I mean, this is so opposite of American Christianity. There's no self-indulgence in Christianity. There's, there's none. There's no me in Christianity. There's no you in Christianity. Christianity has nothing to do with us. It has to do with us dying. If you want to put yourself into the equation, put yourself next to death. What does Christianity look like for me? To die to all my wants, all my needs, all my hopes, all my dreams, and putting Christ first. This is what it means to be a disciple. And the last one we see, verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I remember if, if you were here last week, part of the excuses that were being made were over oxen and over land, over possessions. So Jesus is going, listen, if you don't put these possessions behind me, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't renounce everything, you cannot be my disciple. So just based on what we see in these three verses, what is a disciple? Someone who considers Jesus better than their possessions, relationships, and their own lives someone who considers Jesus better than their possessions, their relationships, and their own lives. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but as I'm writing this sermon this week, I'm going, oh man, I'm supposed to preach that? And you might be sitting there going, um, pastor, like I never, I never heard anything like this. Like I thought Christianity meant I don't want to go to hell. I'm going to say this prayer and I'm going to go to church when I can. And if I feel extra generous around Christmas or Easter, I might write a check and, and feel really good about myself, and, and that would be it. And so Jesus is writing to people like us. He's preaching a sermon to crowds like us. I mean, can you imagine if I just went into any church across the country right now with over more than ten or 20,000 people and just said what I just said, just quoted Jesus, how many people would be like, uh, okay, I'm out. I thought this thing was a little different. I thought like... Mm, but if that means I have to put Jesus ahead of my possessions, my relationships, and, and even my own life, I might not have signed up for this thing. So you have just a picture here, and, and this might happen this morning. I'm praying not, and we'll get to there. But this crowd of 20,000 probably just dwindled down to, what, a 1,000 maybe? I mean, we see the upwards of 20,000 people following Christ at his crucifixion, 120, in the room after 12, and one of those had fallen away. So Jesus is not mincing words. He's not trying to grow this great crowd. He's going, no, listen, if you want to be my disciple, it's going to cost you everything. Is it still worth it. It's still good. So, so what does it mean then if we have the defined dis- what a disciple is? What does it really mean to count the cost? Like what does that mean to count the cost? So one of my joys of my job is premarital counseling. I love, I'm not a counselor. Don't come ask me for counsel. Uh, but if you're getting married, I love to do premarital counseling uh, because it, it's just the greatest thing ever. Uh, just the awkwardness that comes into the room when you get to talk about anything and everything. Marriage is great and watch people, it's just great. But here's my, I mean, just all cards on the table. What is my main goal in, when I do premarital counseling? And my wife, is, she does not with me. She'll pinch me when I get too awkward or, or talk about things I shouldn't. But what is my main goal? I wanna break you up. What? When I do premarital counseling, my main goal is to let you not get married. I know that sounds weird, but if I can talk you out of marriage before you get married, then your marriage is probably going to end in divorce anyways. So I'm going to draw on everything. There's not going to be a single stone unturned by the time we get done with marital. I mean, I'm talking everything. There are kids in this room, so I'm not gonna explain everything, but anything you could think that you would ever talk about premarital counseling, it is discussed in, in, in more detail than you would want. I love it. I just, it's just, yeah. Don't ask me like, if your marriage is falling apart, I'm, we'll, the church will help you find another counselor. If you're getting married, come talk to us and I will make your marriage fall apart. But here's the, here's the point. I want you, I'm gonna press in, I want you to consider the cost of marriage. I don't want to, to be one year, two years, three years in a marriage, and you call me up and say, Pastor, you never told me about this. You never told me to expect this. My wife just left me, and if you would have counseled me better, I'm going to go, no, no, no. I brought up everything. So what does it look like to count the cost? What does it look like to consider? That means can, can I talk you out of following Christ? Can you consider what that means? Uh, the first one that we see is verse 28. Um, Can you afford to actually follow after him? In 28, he tells this quick parable of someone building a tower who does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation but is not able to finish, all who see will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build was not able to finish. So when we're talking about being a disciple, we're talking about committing everything to Christ all the way way to the point of death. You have to look as far into your future and say, can I afford to do this? Can I afford um, to give up everything forever? Can I afford my retirement for the sake of Christ? Can I afford not getting married for the sake of Christ? Can I afford having or not having kids for the sake of Christ? Can I afford graduating or not graduating for the sake of Christ? Everything in my future... As far out as I can plan and see, am I actually okay if, if Christ decides to go in a different direction? That, yes, yeah, sure, we, we uh, plan, we have a plan for our future. That would be wise to do, but do we ha- hold it open-handed and God, whatever you want to do is fine. I and mean, we see this with Paul all over the place in the New Testament. My desire was to go here, but the Lord redirected my path. My desire was to go here, but the Lord redirected my path. So I'm not saying you can't have a plan for the future, but I'm saying if none of that plan takes place, are you okay? Or are you going to be the man that builds this foundation and can't build the rest? I mean, I vividly remember we were at Pools Mill when my wife and I, before we got engaged, and I said to her, I don't know where the Lord's going to lead me. If, that does, if that's not okay with you, don't marry me. We, we might go to China. I mean, I think every college kid says, I'm going to China. You're not going to China. Shut up. Um, who knows where my future is going to go? But if you can't, sorry if that offended anyone, it's just the truth. Um, if you can't follow me wherever I'm going, if you can't count the cost here, then, then don't marry me. And of course, my wife is awesome. she said, okay, let's, let's do it. Whatever it takes, whatever our future holds for the sake of the gospel, we're in. So can you look as far in the future and say, okay, As I'm considering the cost of what it really looks like to be a disciple, as far in the future as I can see, I mean, I've I've counted the cost. The other uh, illustration that he uses in verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends delegation and asks for terms of peace. So the first thing is we're talking about considering counting the cost. What does it mean to take this definition of disciple, meaning all possessions, all relations, even my own life is yours, Christ. Can I afford it? Can I afford in the future to say that I'm gonna follow Christ as far as I can? But the other question that he's pointing out is, can you afford not to? I mean, yeah, so we have to consider as far as I go, I'm gonna count the cost, but the other cost is can, can I afford not to? Do you really think that you're strong enough to make it through life on your own? Do you really think that you are smart enough and wise enough on your own power apart from Christ to, to make it through this world by yourself? I mean, you've got to ask this question as we're counting the costs. Can I really do this? But Proverbs 18, I think, says it in a really good way. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So when we follow Christ, we get Christ. I mean, I don't think we can, that sounds like a such simple statement. But when we decide to be a disciple of Christ, we get Christ. Someone that sticks closer to a, than a brother. Someone that's never gonna leave us, that's never gonna forsake us, that, that has created and designed and implemented this entire universe. That's who we get. A friend that sticks closer than a brother. That is who we gain. So my question is, can you afford not to? Uh, Joseph and I, I don't know why I called you Joseph. Joe and I went to this church plant residency this week because um, Joe is pursuing ministry as a high school student. It's just a beautiful thing to watch. But um, one of the things, my main assignment this time was to teach on as a church planner. what does it look like for family and personal health? I mean, I don't know if you've seen the statistics of pastors dropping out of ministry. and I mean, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's a train wreck. Honestly, I mean, the, the role of, uh, in one of the books I was reading, they talked about this pastor trying to get life insurance and that he was on the same scale because of burnout and because all that comes with the pastor, he was on the same scale as insurance as an underground, uh, underwater welder. I mean, that's the same insurance policies that these guys would fall under. That's how damaging this job can be. Uh, So you're welcome. Um, But anyways, so my main role in trying to teach these guys and what I do anytime anyone pursues ministry, here's the one thing I always press in. Can you see yourself doing anything else? Can you literally see yourself? Would anything else bring you joy? Would anything else bring you happiness? If you could see yourself doing anything else, then please, by all means, go do it. Because if not, you're just gonna turn into a statistic. You're going to be one of the pastors that burns out, that doesn't make it, that flames out in a huge heap of glory and destroys the church and destroys the witness for Christ. So if you can see, picture yourself literally doing anything else, please, by all means, go do it. So I think what Christ is saying is, do you have what it takes on your own? If you, can, if you think you can do this life on your own, please, by all means, go do it. Go try. If you think that you don't need me to complete you, to lead you every day of your life, then, then by all means, go try it. Go do it. But he knows the truth. He's designed us in companionship with him. We go all the way back to the garden of Genesis. How were we designed to walk hand in hand with the Father daily? We cannot live apart from Christ. So so what does this mean then? I mean, I think we would all agree that this is really harsh. This is really um, upfront. This is really abrasive. Why? I mean, why is Jesus dropping the bomb on this so much so? Because this is what it means to be a Christian this is what it means to be a disciple that you can't have one foot in and one foot out and follow after Christ and this is where I mean geez this is such a problem with the church today that there's actually theological terms built around this uh, dissection that we're talking about so I'm just gonna spend I I know I don't want to go theological nerd on you guys for the next but just for five minutes just let me let me go Uh, There's two terms that we're going to look at, lordship, salvation versus free grace. Lordship, salvation versus free grace. And so let me start off with free grace because this is what I think people wanted in the day. This is what we want now. This just makes more sense for us that we can say, yes, Jesus is my savior without actually bowing down to the fact that Jesus is Lord. So we all know we've had Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Jesus is my Lord and Savior, okay. So this idea of free grace would say, no, no, no. Jesus can be your Savior. He can save you. You've got a seat in heaven, but you don't actually have to bow down to his Lordship. It's called free grace. You can just follow after him. You're good. You're covered. You don't actually have to do all that Jesus is requiring of you. As long as you just admit the fact that Jesus is your Savior, that you know that he died on the cross for your sins, you're fine. Don't worry about this Lord stuff will come later, but salvation happens if you just admit that Jesus is Savior. And so what comes out of this is uh, any country song that you ever turn on the radio, right? This unrepentant idea that I'm going to go get drunk on Saturday night and sit next to my mama on Sunday morning singing Amazing Grace with my hands held high. You get this trash idea that I can live however I want to live throughout the week, but as long as I'm in church Sunday next to my mama, I'm good. And we see this all over the place. I mean, especially in the South. If you just have a couple conversations with people, man, tell me what it means to be a Christian. Oh, man, I I go to church. You know, go to church whenever I can. I mean, I'm, I'm busy. Our kids are in travel sports and all this kind of stuff. But man, I, whenever I can get there, I get there. I throw a, you know, 20 in the offering plate when it comes by. That's, that's what it means for me. I mean, my, my parents went to church their whole life. I want my kids to be a part of a church. But I don't know why I'm getting more country as I'm talking about it. Um, we're just in the South, I guess. That's what it means to be a Christian. So what they're saying is, I believe Jesus is my Savior. I believe that he lived, I believe that he died, I believe that he was resurrected on the third day, I believe that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. I believe that, so I'm in. What Jesus is teaching is, no, that, that's part of it. It's great that you believe he's your savior, but he's got to be your Lord. So there's this whole other side, I mean, the the far extreme where the branch would line up, it's called Lordship Salvation. For what it means to be saved, for what it means to be a disciple is, yes, you need to admit that he is your Savior, that he did die on the cross, that he did uh, defeat death, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But because of that, he must also be your Lord. And I would argue, based on the text, based on passages like this, that if we believe Jesus is Savior, but we don't believe he's Lord, I would doubt how much of a Savior you really think he is. We just have to stop and wrestle and go, okay, what is mine? Do I really believe this? And and all of this, I think, would be uh, recapped very well in Romans 10. Romans if you have scripture, flip over with me real quick. I just want you to see this one to make sure I'm not just pulling this stuff out of nowhere. Romans chapter 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. And sidebar, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, we've got some sitting around everywhere. Please take one. That's our gift. We want you to have God's word. Pick it up verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved Let me read that again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not if you confess he's Savior, if you confess that he's Lord. And this pairs perfectly with where we are this morning. I am so, trust me, church, if you believe that Jesus is your Savior, I am grateful for that. Grateful for whoever taught you the gospel, whoever taught you the word. But if they didn't continue on teaching you that because of his Savior, he must be your Lord, I'm sorry. And that's we—that's what we have to wrestle with. That's why Jesus says, "Have you counted the cost?" That's why tens of thousands of people walked away from Jesus after this message that he preached to twenty thousand people. Because he's saying, "Listen, cool that you believe in me because I do all these miracles. But if you're not willing to die over this, then this isn't for you." And church, if we're not willing to die to ourselves, to everything that we have, for the sake of the gospel, are we actively following Christians? Are we actively a disciple? We have to be Savior, or he has to be Savior and Lord. There's no in between. There's no middle ground. So, so what then does this mean for us? Because I, I've, I've pushed the envelope way over here. But in the, one of the biggest questions you have to ask yourself when you're considering the cost is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? When Caleb was over there doing all the wall balls, what's going through his mind is, is this really worth it? Like, if I get to 150, does this matter for anything? So my question for us, church, as we're considering the cost of discipleship, is it worth it? So these these next, I've got four scriptures that I want us to see, and they're gonna be on the screen, so make sure you write these down and study them on your own time, because I can convince you the fact that it's worth it, but I think scripture just does a way better job. So 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18 is the first, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So are we willing to count the cost for the things that are eternal? Are we willing to get rid of some of the possessions we have now if Christ asks us to so that we get... Uh, possessions that are eternal, that last forever. Romans eight eighteen says this, for I consider that suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. The sufferings of this time are not worth comparing with the glory that has been revealed to us. Now, let me just be straight here for a second. If I can come up with the best imagery here, and it's probably not the best, but it, it resonates to me. Uh, we have four kids, right? A six, three, two, and one-year-old. Every time, I'm not lying, every time I walk out of that delivery room, I go, that is not worth it. All those noises and screams and my hand is broken from my wife squeezing it, there's no way that that is worth it ever again. Ever, 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 we're not going back in that room, ever again. But you wait three months, six months, you're playing with that bundle of joy, you're having fun and you go, okay, maybe again. We walk in there, I walk out pale-faced, trying not to pass out, never again, not doing this. I've seen and heard things I cannot unsee or unhear, never again. We do it again, we've done it again. Because in that moment is the worst thing possible. There's pain and gnashing of teeth and I think they talk about it in the Bible. But do I regret having four kids in the nursery right now? No way. Would I do anything for those four kids? Yes. So what what scripture is getting at is I consider the sufferings right now in this moment, nothing to be compared to what's coming for me. Nothing to be compared to what's happening in glory. Nothing to be compared when I get to eternity. Now you're well done, good and faithful servant. None of this matters anymore. This momentary affliction will not matter in 5 years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 10,000 years. This one rough patch, this one decision that's going to affect me for the next few months, really doesn't matter at all. And I'm not trying to negate that. I know in that moment it hurts. I know in that moment you're going to start doubting whether you should have followed Christ to begin with. But I'm saying, please, I say this all the time, just zoom out. Just zoom out, just a little bit to see, okay, this stinks right now, but in one year is this going to matter? This stinks right now, but in 10,000 years am I going to remember this? Are these momentary afflictions worth the weight of eternal glory? And we would say, yes, yes it is. Matthew 13:44 through 46 The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding the pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So when we see the supremacy of Christ. And we see what it means to follow after Christ. When Christ gives us the invitation, here's where I'm going, will you come with me? We understand the treasure that that actually is. We're going to get rid of everything so that we can follow him. There's nothing that's going to be as worthy as him. And the last one I'll read, Mark 10, 28 through 31, because I feel like this just kind of sums up what some of us might be feeling this morning. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. We've left it all. I mean, you can almost sense the frustration in Peter's voice. We don't have anything anymore, Jesus. We literally left it all. And here's what Jesus says back. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and childrens and lands in the age of it come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So saying, I, I get it. Like, I, I want to have empathy. I want to have empathy. I understand what you're giving up, Jesus is saying to Peter. But you have to understand me, church. What you're giving up is going to mean nothing for eternity. I'm going to pay you back a hundredfold for all that you've thought through, all that you've sacrificed, all that you've given up. So is it worth it as we sit down to count out the cost of being a disciple? Yes yes. But going back to that original quote, Jesus never coerced us to do this, guys. I don't want to sit here and tell you, oh, it's worth it. You have to count the cost. This is your decision. Is Christ enough for you to leave everything and follow him? But the other question I just have to ask this morning as we start to close down, as we wrestle is, have you actually considered the cost? I mean, I know a lot of us, we've grown up in church and we understand this church background, but have you actually sat down and counted down the cost and said, okay, I will follow you this far, Christ, but not that far. That you are my Savior, but you're not actually my Lord. And I would just press in and go, I I, love, I just don't know if you're saved. As harsh as that can sound, I'm saying it as lovingly as possible. If that is your idea of salvation, that he can be your Savior, but not your Lord, I don't think that you understand the gospel. I don't think that you're following after what Christ means, and I would want to press in and ask a lot more questions, because I don't, I don't want you to think this life, that means you're saved as you keep going, and you might actually not. So, so my question for us this morning is simple, is what Jesus has asked us. Have you counted the cost? And listen, this is that this fear mongering on our part, we were just teaching through the book of Luke and this is where we've landed. So this isn't a manipulative thing. This is Jesus doing the most loving thing possible and we're trying to do the most loving thing possible by teaching the hard truths. Can you follow Christ? Have you counted the cost? Are you actually saved because you're saying, man, I'm gonna, I am going gonna—I consider it all rubbish for the sake of Christ. Is it easy? No, 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 no. Don't, don't hear that. Please don't hear me say that. Is it worth it? Yes. Yes. So so here's what I want us to do this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray and we're going to take communion. And I want you to consider, have you actually counted the cost? I mean, are you actually following Christ wherever he's leading you to? Have you sat down and said, no matter what possessions God asked me to give up, I'm going to do it. No matter what relationships Jesus asked me to give up, I'm going to do it. No matter if it's my own life, for the sake of the gospel, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I'm in, I'm doing it. And if you can't answer those, I understand. Please hear me, there's grace for that, there's a process in that. But Jesus is wooing you in. He's asking you to do that, he's asking you to count the cost, to leave it all for the sake of the future glory. That's what it means to be a disciple. So here's what I would ask. As we consider this, the cost of discipleship, if you don't think you're there, maybe this would be a good morning just to not take communion, just to sit and ponder this for a while. If you want to talk to me or one of the other elders, we'll be standing at the communion tables. We can talk through, we can pray through this with you, but we just have to sit down and count the cost. Are we actually following Jesus with everything we have? Please don't deceive yourself either. We we love you guys as a community too much for you to go through this life just pretending. So if if you're saying, okay, listen, I've grown up in church, but like this is this is not what I was taught. This is I've I've got to process this. I've got to work. I understand. Jesus understands. He's asking you to count the cost. He's asking you don't be that builder that gets to a foundation and stops. He's asking you don't be that uh, that king that gets to battle and has to retract his battle cry because he didn't count the cost. Don't be like Caleb that gets to wall balls and does 11 out of 150. Thanks for doing that, by the way. Count the cost of discipleship. So let's pray. And Father, we know that this is for our joy, that you've asked us this, Jesus. God, that you're not asking us to give up anything just to be mean or controlling, Father, but you know the way to true life. Father, you know that, that we can't do this thing apart from you. God, we know that we are so tempted to follow the way of the world that ultimately just leads to death like John ten ten 10 states. So Father, I pray for us this morning. Have we actually counted the cost to follow you? Are we one of the 12, one of the 120 that are following you no matter what? Are we part of the 20,000 that are following you just when it's convenient for us? Just because you're doing some cool stuff and we want to be close to that. And Jesus, we, we admit, I admit that there is oftentimes I ask myself, is this really worth it? I could be making more money elsewhere. I could be taking my family on bigger and better vacations. Is this really worth it? God, I pray that as a church, as, as disciples of you, we would have Romans just etched into our memory that these moment, momentary afflictions are nothing, are nothing compared to the future glory. And the rewards that we will get there, that like you sell to Peter a hundredfold, everything we give up here will receive back a hundredfold in glory. So, is it worth it? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So, Jesus, I just pray for us in this room that have never actually considered the cost for ourselves. Father, we have always admitted that you're Savior, but we have wrestled with the fact if you're really Lord. And so God, I pray for the church this morning as, as we take a time just to sit and consider and ponder. God, would we count the cost? Would we be honest with ourselves about our true feelings of you and, and submitting to you as our Lord and Savior? thank you for, for leading us and teaching us through unpopular texts for the sake of our sanctification, God. We are grateful for that. So this morning, as we, as we take communion, would this be a, a war cry that we have counted the cost and we're in? That by your body and by your blood, we are in and there's no turning back. If we grab the plow and look back, we're not fit for the kingdom. We are in. Father, we consider all rubbish for the sake of you and your name and your glory. All possessions, all relationships, Father, even our own lives, mean nothing compared to you and your plan for us. So this morning, after we consider, after we count the cost, would would our time of communion be a sweet covenant between us and you that we are in that you are so good to us Father as you end this passage with the salt God let us not be salt that loses our saltiness that that loses our zeal and our covenants to you And, and Father because of that we're not even fit for the manure pile so Jesus we are humbly coming to you this morning, telling you that we love you and that we're in, wherever you lead us, we're, we're in. God, would you draw near to us, though, through this process, because it is painful and there will be afflictions and there will be hard times. And God, we plead with you that at, through those times that you would be so real to us in those moments that, that we can't turn back, that we can't quit that we won't lose our saltiness because we have tasted and seen how good you are. Jesus, thank you for loving us. It's in your name we pray, amen.